Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Benjamin, along with Bruce Kelly for The Investment News Podcast. We've got another great guest this week, Tom Rosine, Head of Research Services at Refinitiv Lipper. We're going to be talking about the uh, recently published Lipper Awards. These uh, Lippers have been doing this for more than 30 years, and uh, I know the fund industry is uh, pays close attention to it. I uh, wrote a story on the, the big winners that came uh, was posted on our website, investmentnews.com, March 10th. So check that out. It'll also be in the March 14th issue of the publication. Tom, how you doing? Thanks for being here. Jeff, doing great. Thanks for having me. Hello, Bruce. Good to meet you. Nice to meet you too, Tom. So Tom, you and I, we had a, we had a, a longish conversation a week or so ago talking about the, the awards and the the winners, the there's no reference to losers there because there's nobody listed as a loser. But if you're not on the list, I guess I guess that's where you are. I don't know. I don't want to be too mean. Um, let's, <laughs> let, let's Tom talk talk to us a little bit about. I mean, just the basics of the 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 kind of the rules. I, I know there's a lot of confusion. I got an email today which I forwarded to you about somebody talking about the performance of one of the funds that had won across three categories, uh, three, five, and 10-year periods. And, and the significance is that, as you and I talked about, these are risk-adjusted returns that you're looking at, right? Exactly. Yeah, you know, I think people are confused a little bit when, when we talk about the awards. We're so used to seeing a top-performing fund out there, and we always think about total return. But I think most investors really want to have what we used to call with sharp ratios and the like, we don't want to get complex here, but risk-adjusted returns. How much risk are, are, are our managers taking in order to give us return? And so we have a thing, it's called a relative risk avoidance. And it basically tells us that the general investor really does want to have good returns, but they really abhor negative returns. And so our model, our consistent return measure, which is what the Lipper Fund Awards are based on, basically punishes downside performance over multiple periods that we're looking at, uh, about four times more than it gives, if you will, benefit or accolade to great performance. So this is really something to talk about. Good, strong performance, by the way, don't get me wrong, but also take into effect that we punish downside performance. And again, just for example, 36-month period, we'll take a look at 36 one-month periods, 12 three-month periods. And, you know, I could keep rambling on for the three-month non-overlapping periods, it really is a good way to evaluate risk-adjusted returns for all funds. Let's talk about some of the winners. The um, And if you, in case any of our audience didn't read my story, which I don't know why you wouldn't have read it by now, but um, T. Rowe won the overall large company award uh, and Calamos, won, Calamos Advisors won the overall small company award. And as you guys break that down, large and small, you divide it by, I think, a or the, the line of demarcation is 100, roughly 132 billion under management. So that's where the large and small is. But a couple of things I found interesting here. Um, total fund awards by company, by fund company, uh, Fidelity dominated with 35, I think. And uh, next was T. Rowe with 24 individual fund awards. And then uh, PIMCO with 23. But what's interesting, and, and this is what I want you to talk about, and it kind of gets to the, the overall kind of risk-adjusted performance of a fund company, is Calamos, which won the Small Company Award, they didn't have any individual winners, correct? 
Right, and, and that's not too unusual. You know, let's take a look at how we're doing this. We're pro probably trying to find those funds with this consistent return uh, that I was talking about, the best one there. You know, we get an actual number of, of return for it. And that is the winner, it's the number one winner. But if you have somebody like Calmos, who has a whole bunch of funds that's in second place all the way across the board for their groups. And let's kind of step back uh, here in a second, but for their groups, if they have that second place position, they could easily be the top winner because what we're looking for in the group fund awards is five unique funds in the equity arena or the fixed income arena or three in mixed assets. And that's for the large fund family. Remember you just talked about the 131 or 132 billion uh, in assets under management as a demarcation. But for the small fund families, they have to have at least three equities or three fixed income uh, and or three mixed assets. So really what it is with the Calamos uh, story here is that, yeah, they didn't hit the home run. They didn't have the top 1% all the way across the board, but they had enough funds that outperformed in their entire lineup, which is very impressive, maybe in second or third place the entire time. So it really is quite an accomplishment. And this is also something I wanted to, I wanted you to explain or, or maybe repeat from our conversation earlier is uh, sometimes having more funds, some of these giant fund companies like, like Fidelity, for example, they had 35 individual fund trophies, but they didn't win the overall because if you have more funds, you could have more funds that drag down the, the average, right? That's exactly, exactly it. So, you know, when we're taking a look at, you know, how many funds are actually competing within a group, you know, large is actually a smaller group because there isn't that many people that are fund families with that much assets under management. So we are generally looking at, let's say, 30. Uh, fund families. But again, they may have two or 300 funds that are being ranked within these equity fixed income mixed asset groups. And that, uh, again, mediocrity, you can catch up with them. And I'm not saying that that fidelity in this case was mediocre uh, at all, but that's where the problem is. It's kind of the middle of the belly of the curve that can cause them uh, some problems with the mass numbers. But equally, uh, what's important though, with back to that Calamus advisor stories, or even uh, the Needham Investment and Managements or the Carillon Tower Advisors, those fund families actually had a much larger group because there's a lot of small fund families out there, right? So one of the cases, we had 180 different fund families that they had to compete against. That's a pretty big number. So again, some of these smaller fund families are actually doing very well uh, as well. So, so the story is kind of a, uh, a double-edged sword there. Last year, when I when I did the same story on the Lilliper Awards, the the thing that stood out was uh, there was a lot of ESG strategies that were that made it to the top, uh, got awards and fund company awards and everything else. Anything stand out to you this year? Well, yeah, I mean, I think we had a combination of that still, uh, right? Because in the group awards, you know, we were still seeing kind of the, the hangover from growth of the stay-at-home stocks doing very well, as we all know, right? You know, anybody who was in tech or tech-related stocks actually did wonderful. Uh, but we started moving in the latter portion of the year into a value-oriented market. And so we did have a little bit of rotation and less of these high-producing ESG. And ESG, again, we, we know that they, they do favor, they get away from the oil and gases, but they do favor more tech focus. So again, uh, they may not be in the top. They certainly are in the top winners of the individual classifications. But from a management company group award, uh, we didn't see as many of the ESG players uh, at the top. Okay. Bruce, anything for Mr. Rosine? Yeah, hey, Tom. I'm just kind of curious, not so much on the investment management uh, performance and evaluation side and the risk adjusted returns and the like, but
But as for you as a lipper guy, how has the shift in the fund industry from actively managed funds to index and passively managed funds, and also the um, mergers and acquisitions among some of these big fund managers like Waddell and Reed and Eaton Vance, right? Eaton Vance was bought by Morgan Stanley recently. Waddell and Reed was acquired by Macquarie, I believe. There's not as many active managers around as there used to be, and a lot more assets are in passively managed funds. How has that affected your job and what you and what Lipper does and the like, if that's a germane question at all? It is, actually. Um, so we have been seeing, obviously, uh, you know, I do a flow segment each each month and I do a quarter review on what's happening in the market overall. And certainly we have seen flows going towards the passive side of the uh, industry. But in this case, when we're taking a look at the uh, Lipper Fund Awards, it does show uh, that there are many funds out there that are actively managed that are outperforming their benchmark. And in fact, if we take a look at benchmarks, most of the benchmarks don't un, you know, outperform their underlying index, right? Because they still have expense ratios, they still have cash drag and the like. Right. So it's, it's, it's a little bit of a misnomer when we talk about you know, passively managed funds always leading. Uh, I think we're in an area uh, where we're seeing a little bit more active managed play. Uh, but uh, certainly at the top of these groups that we're taking a look at, that is exactly the funds that are being highlighted in this case. And again, it's of the average. So there are passively managed funds in this group as well. Uh, but we are seeing the active managers that are willing and able to go outside of those boundaries, right? You know, go outside of the lines, uh, actually gain a positive return. So uh, again, this is one of those situations where uh, the fund awards, I think, are really highlighting the fact that there are active managers that are doing a pretty good job. And when you talk to your, you know, broker dealer or RA clients, what are they particularly interested in now in 2022? What are some of the questions that you're getting from the clients who turn to you all for research and evaluation and the like? So a lot of folks are really looking at flows. Where is the money going? And we can certainly look at uh, the flows going into uh, mutual funds, but really often what a telltale for the uh, managers is to kind of get an idea on how quick uh, ETFs are changing their positions, right? You know, we see SPY, the Spider S&P 500, taking a ton of money and then lose a ton of money. And people want to see what those are actually occurring. Now we're back to the passive versus active. However, we are seeing more actively managed funds. So two other trends that we're actually seeing as well is obviously the big movement towards uh, ESG. Uh, people are paying big attention to, uh, you know, whether the funds underlying uh, you know, picking those assets out are actually paying attention and they are starting to do that more. We are seeing that. We're seeing flows go there. And then secondly, what is actually happening in the commodities uh, universe uh, into some of these other products that we've been actually straying away from? So value funds, small caps falling out of favor with the NASDAQ, you know, hitting uh, hit a correction territory, I think like two days ago, right? Or actually uh, a bear market uh, territory, right? They're down 20% from their high in November. So uh, people are trying to pay attention to that and trying to keep an eye on where the investments are going right now. Huh. Okay. Interesting. Thanks. Yeah. Jeff? Yeah. Hey, um, Tom, just following on one of Bruce's questions about active mutual funds and kind of mutual funds in general, uh, we know that the money is, is kind of moving. I know mutual funds are still much, much larger than the exchange traded fund space, but is there any way you could do something like this with or on ETFs? Uh, he's talking about ratings, you mean, or, or yeah, fund awards? Yeah, awards on, on ETFs. Yeah, I mean. yeah, yeah, most definitely. Uh, but then uh, you know, all of a sudden, there's two things that you have to be worried about. Uh, well, first of all, is ETFs for active for passive now, which is kind of the same story. 
Uh, but when we're taking a look at expenses are a big thing. So if you are going to compete against somebody who's going to go with zero expense ratio on their ETF, it's going to be hard for the person that's uh, charging five basis points. Um, so, you know, those are things. But with that in mind, you know, ETFs now, if you take a look at their average expense ratio with the unique boutique focus that some of the ETFs have, they're actually, you know, 50, 100 basis points of expense ratio. So we're not seeing that big of an advantage. There obviously is still the tax advantage. Uh, which is huge, by the way, uh, you know, in-kind redemptions and the like, marvelous. Uh, but we are seeing the expense ratios tighten up a little bit uh, uh, as far as I shouldn't say tighten up, loosen up a little bit, uh, moving towards a greater expense ratio. So I think we'll see uh, active managers, you know, moving into the space, right? We're seeing the conversions of open-end funds into uh, passively managed, if you want to call it, actually actively managed ETFs. But the expense ratios are coming down slightly and becoming competitive. Um, so that is one of the things that we're looking at as well as the conversion from open ends uh, to, uh, if you will, exchange traded funds. Is it possible that I'm not saying you should pit ETFs against mutual funds in the same lip rewards uh, categories, but is it possible that you can have a in lip rewards for ETFs? There absolutely is. So let me give you an example. So one of my cohorts and I are also on uh, some of the can Canadian uh, fund award committees. And uh, we actually do uh, celebrate and announce the top performing exchange traded products uh, in there as well uh, in, in the Canadian universe. So it certainly is something we could consider. And by the way, where we're not acknowledging them in the Lipper Fund Awards, we actually have a consistent return rating, which can be you know, received online through you know, various uh, shops out there. Uh, and they can actually see what their consistent return, what fund awards are based on. Uh, what their consistent return is and how they compare to open-end funds uh, as well. So we already are kind of doing that. We're just not providing the awards for them at this time. And something else I want to ask you about is the, uh, we're two plus years of uh, COVID now, pandemic world living. And I don't know how much longer we're going to feel this way. It seems like things are getting better, but <clears throat> we're, I guess we're stuck technically still there based on some of the rules and, and mandates out there. What kind of a evolution have you seen in the, I guess, the mutual fund performance over that period? And could we possibly this time next year be looking at three years of COVID performance in the mutual fund space? Well, you know, if we are, we as investors should be pretty happy. Now, I, I say that, and I, I don't want to make uh, any soft spoken statements on COVID and the devastation it's caused the world and you know, certainly uh, all of our pocketbooks. But when we take a look at one-year returns uh, for 20, uh, 2021, the numbers are, were absolutely uh, fantastic. We were in you know, over 10% mark in most cases. Um, you know, if we look at three-year returns for, let's say, uh, you know, large cap funds, and actually I'm looking at a time period right now of the period ended in 2021, 22.87% on three-year average annualized return. That's a monster. One-year returns uh, of 22.41% uh, for the average, uh, uh, if you will, USD, what we call domestic equity funds. So it has been a good year. Now, to your point, though, what we're seeing is this subtle shift from the go-go funds. Again, we already talked about this. This is the stay-at-home funds, you know, any tech-oriented funds, taking it on the chin. NASDAQ, again, down 20% since it's high in November. And we are seeing a clear move towards value. Um, and, and, and we even saw at the end of it that, you know, that, that small cap play in the NASDAQ was doing really, really well. So I think we're going to see a shift. And I think one of the biggest things that we're facing right now because of 
the pandemic is this very low interest rate that needs to be raised because of inflation. We're all worried about the inflation effect right now. And I think that is going to be the 2022 bugaboo that we're all going to keep an eye on. Inflation and uh, also a rotation, uh, maybe back to the banks and financials, although that didn't work in the last two or three weeks. Uh, but rotation into those sectors that have not always done well. This is where the fund awards are very good, though. They give the investment advisor, they give the financial planner an opportunity to look at some of the top performing funds within their particular classification, identify those, maybe they're buying at a, at a low value, I'd hope they would be, and uh, get their clients or even get the individual investor into the funds that they want to be that are right now underperforming, right, but have the potential about performing. And that's what's uh, so good about our Lipper Fund Award, by the way. Well, it just sounds like Tom uh, put all his money in commodities funds uh, in the second <laughs> half of last year and came out a winner. Well, true, I, Tom? I, I wish that was the case, uh, but <laughs> actually I did a right, you know, I, I cover closed in funds. So actually I was looking at a lot of the uh, energy MLP funds uh, right. and the like. So we have been talking about that move, but I cannot say that my foresight was that grand. <laughs> one thing, one thing I do want to point out though, is that when we're looking at the Lipper Fund Awards, there are two other things that happen and you brought it up right. at the top, top of the segment is first of all, there are several funds out there that swept their category, meaning that they won the three, the five and the 10 year period. That's amazing. But we even have a list of funds that have actually showed very strong performance and have actually swept their categories uh, in the three, five, and 10, but for the uh, 2022 uh, awards, 2021, 2019, sorry, I missed 20, 2020 and 2019. So there is some persistency and stickiness uh, to some of the top performers. And everybody will tell you, mean reversion, Tom's, Tom's talking out as you know what, but, but for me, a mean reversion point of view, sure, some of these are gonna you know, trend down to let's say average performance or let's say a, a range of three. But there are several funds out there have proven time and time again that they were able to rise to the occasion and not only for just the three, five, and 10, but the three, five, and 10 over the last four years. So it is something that the average investment advisor, uh, uh, you know, uh, any, of, any of the people that are RAs out there can actually go out and take a look at what the track records are for many of these funds. Good stuff, Tom. Tom Thanks, Rosie. Tom. Head of Research Services at Refinitive Lipper. Thank you very much for, for your hard work and for helping us out and uh, for helping us understand these Lipper Awards, how you can win them and uh, how you can't. Jeff, Bruce, thank you for, for having me. We certainly appreciate that. Welcome back, everybody. We're here for a, a second part or second little bit of the podcast now. Jeff and I are going to talk about uh, some uh, special edition of the newspaper um, that's coming out, I believe, the week of the 22nd uh, by my calendar, even though we were working on these stories for this week, um, and they're going to be on our website uh, soon. Um, it's about this whole new normal business, right, Professor Benjamin? And uh, yes, I mean, between you and me, I'm, I'm, I'm sick of the new normal, living it, writing about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I'm like, thinking about it. Uh, let's either call it normal or new or. I or mean, we've written how many how many new normal stories have we written? <clears throat> That's what I'm laughing about. You know, I well, mean, I think this is probably our third our third uh, version of right. new normal. Um, because, you know, when we first wrote this thing. It's a been two bit years after, since the pandemic, right. really. 
Right. Yeah, we, 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 our first version of this, everybody on staff kind of looked at their beats and said, you know, these are what things are, pe people are doing things differently. Everybody was scrambling to still be able to work when you couldn't come in, come within six feet of another living organism. Um, and then we, a year later, we looked at it and said, well, all right, people have adjusted now. People are accepting the fact that right. they're not back in their offices and they haven't been there in a long time. And people have been, hired and sometimes fired without ever meeting their bosses in yes. person and stuff like that and now here we are at this point uh, two plus years into this and as we were just talking about with tom rosine we don't know next year at this time we might be having the same conversation hopefully it's a more watered down version of of the new normal but water water really normal <clears throat> yeah new water um new water diluted normal um <laughs> <laughs> normal on the rocks um now you're anyway, talking. so that's and that's i mean one of my my charge on this new normal project was yes to talk to uh, a lot of the larger financial services asset managers wealth management firms and get yes. that taken it was kind of interesting to me because you know these are giant firms that you know like schwab and fidelity and vanguard and t Rowe price i mean you know they don't you know they're battleships they don't move on a dime they but they think probably ad nauseum about everything and have i'm just assuming but and yes and they do oh they're gosh, not moving and, and they're not moving in lockstep so it's kind of interesting that mm. you know there some firms are you know uh goldman sachs and t row they're basically back in the office and if you're not vaccinated you wear a mask or something like that but and then you got some companies, I think, you know, Fidelity or, or Schwab, they're, they're starting in, they've divided their workforces and all their offices into eight groups somehow. And they're starting to move people back into offices and stages starting April 25th. I'm in group F in stage three. <laughs> yeah. So it's, everybody's got their own plan and own strategy. And, right. And like I said, these are giant companies with thousands of employees. Tens of thousands of employees. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating, you know. Uh, well, I guess it affects study. everyone who's in our readerships live so much, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is. Am I gonna? I mean, I'm in the Northeast, as as you know, and some mm -hmm. of our listeners might know. I'm in New York City, and the dreaded thing up here is the commute, right? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, you don't want to get on the Long Island Railroad or New Jersey Transit, and you know, come in, come into midtown Manhattan and, and at your office with Morgan Stanley or Raymond James. I mean, Raymond James just opened a right before the uh, uh, pandemic, uh -huh. I believe they just opened up a big new shiny office in midtown and they were going to have municipal bond trading there, I believe, and advisors uh -huh. and the whole bit. So how does that all shake out for them? You know, are those guys want to going to want to come in from Staten Island every day and work there? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, conferences are opening up. We're starting to see more and more conferences this year. Yes. Um, and I don't know what the policies are at some of these places, if they're wearing masks or if you got these red, uh, green and yellow tags to say if you're comfortable. I think during cocktail hour, no one's going to be wearing a mask. Yeah, unless you unless you punch a hole in it to drink your beer through a straw for crying out loud. I, cocktail I, hour. I think for me, the new normal, what I was working on, it's just that I like looking at the numbers and the flows, and it's just so evident that RIAs gained so much steam in recruiting uh, experienced financial advisors, particularly from wirehouses. Um, I mean, there was a net, as according to 
our research and Devin and his, his, his team out there. I mean, RIAs were the biggest net gainers in 2021 of financial advisors, something like mm-hmm. 1500 and change five years ago, that was like 900 and change. Right. You know, and the wirehouses lost something like 2000. We're down 2000 net last year, Merrill Lynch, a thousand net alone. So it's just been a huge gain for RAAs. And I think people are who work at the big, uh, a big firm, like a wirehouse are saying, I've been working from home for two years. What do I need to go back to my office for, you know, mm-hmm. and I can capture more of my, I can keep more of my revenue. I don't have to hand over 40% or 40 cents on the dollar of every dollar of revenue I do to, to the firm. And I can also have more autonomy. Yeah. Yeah. If you're working at a big bank, they expect you to, you know, do banking, you know, re- you know, recommend your client for their banking products. And some guys don't like doing that. Some advisors don't like doing that. So I think it's just given steam to the breakaway movement. It's I don't know if this will last forever this way, this hybrid thing and people having flexibility to come in three days a week and then uh, or, or be at home three days a week or whatever, or if half maybe some people have have gotten used to working from home and uh employers realize that people still do their work for the most part from home um i don't know i mean it it, it, there's a heck of a lot of office space that's gonna you know turn into homeless shelters or something if they don't if they don't want to find a way to get all these people back in there um so maybe it's maybe it's the now normal instead of the new normal all right it's just what we're dealing with now and hopefully we get past this thing and we can get back to shaking hands and you know drinking out of the same glass and sharing bubble gum again <laughs> <laughs> well you you uh, you haven't done experienced all this i mean your son is is old and you're you know out of the house years and years and years ago right so mm-hmm. but for people with kids this is a, this has been a huge uh, boom in a way, you know, not having, yeah. not the homeschooling, of course, which is a complete, you know, disaster in a lot of ways, but just being able to be around when you're now with the kids back at school, particularly in New York, it's been great because the kids go to school and they come back and yeah, it's always good when they come back. Yes, it is. But it's been very helpful for people with, you know, trying to raise particularly small kids. My kids are bigger now. They're almost finished mm-hmm. high school, but particularly with small kids, I can imagine. It's just been, it's been much easier on, on your schedule. All right. Jeff, it's, if it's Monday, it means it's time for another podcast. You can uh, find us, of course, at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. We want to thank Angelica Hester, our producer. We want to thank Tom Rosine the head of Refinitive Lipper Research. And if you want to have a Pepper Jeff or me with some questions, reach out to us on Twitter. Jeff is at Benji Ryder. Me, I'm at BD News Guy. Stay tuned. We'll be talking to you next week. Next week.